All right, if you got your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 2. I mean, I'm happy, but like, why is she obsessed with me? All right, so Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 20 is our text tonight. We're talking about, again, our, our, our sermon series going along with the Advent um, calendar. And so this week we're talking about the gospel joy of, of the shepherds. So starting in Luke chapter 2, verse 8, the text says this, And there were in that same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel... A multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from, from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all that they heard, that heard it wondered at these things, which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. So you probably realize that I read that in the King James because you got to read that in the King James. You can't read it anything else. Sorry, ESV. I, I love you for everything else, but you, but you got to read the, the, the Charlie Brown version, um, for that passage. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> Father God, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for a chance to come and open it, to be taught from it. God, we recognize and acknowledge, um, God, and, and revel in the fact that you speak to us through your word, um, God, that we can come and open your word, that we can read it um, and and hear it preached and taught, and God, that you will speak to us through your word, that you will teach us um, what you would have for us to know, that you will encourage us, that you will convict us, that you will um, give us a new understanding um or a fresh understanding of the truth um, of your scriptures and that you will bless us through them. Father, we pray for the ministries again of the churches of Blunt County as they preach the gospel each week. We pray for the churches that are um, preparing even now for their Christmas services. We pray um, that you would bless them, bless the preaching of your word, God, that, that people's hearts and minds would be turned towards um, the lost and the unchurched, and that, um, God, that you would use this time um, as a way to bring people to know your son, Jesus Christ. God, give us hearts and minds 
uh, to be attentive to those who are on the margins, um, people who, who, um, we might ordinarily look over for some reason, um, but help us to, 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 um, get a fresh, um, vision of your love and care for those people, God, and how you have called us, um, to, to witness to and to reach out to and care for them as well. Um, we thank you for this passage of scripture. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the story of the coming of your son into the world. Uh, we ask that you bless it, uh, and use it to make us more like him. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Sorry, we'll see how long my voice lasts tonight. All right, so like we've talked about each each week over the course of um, our Advent season, we're going to be kind of going through a different passage that zooms in on the theme of that week. Um, because of the way the, the, the Christmas holiday lies this year, next week, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go into this passage again, and I'm going to zoom in on the angel portion, honestly. So the main part that we're going to talk about tonight is, is the, the beginning of this section and the end of this section, the parts that have to do with the shepherds primarily. Um, and then we're going to sort of zoom in on the section where the, the announcement of the angels more, um, on, on Christmas Eve and we join together for our lessons and carol service. But the way I want to approach this passage is that it is a picture of the gospel itself, but it's also a picture of how the gospel should be received. And we don't even have to, to get too allegorical or anything in this passage, um, because the announcement of the good news is literally at the center of the story, right? This is a story about the angelic announcements, announcement of the good news of the gospel. And it begins with people who at the time would have been uh, probably the least expected people to have received that message. And those were the shepherds. So again, in verse eight, it says, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. Some of you have ever noticed this. If you if you've read um, the, the the Bible from from front to back, but shepherds have sort of an interesting storyline throughout the course of Scripture. They go from being revered to despised to revered again from 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 Genesis to Revelation. And there's, there's kind of an interesting probably reason for that. Uh, and it's a function of, of sociology. It's a function of the way humans interact with each other that probably has a lot to do with that. And you see it across cultures. And this is what it basically comes down to. It comes down to the idea of nomadic cultures versus settled cultures. It's really probably as simple as that. Um, the difference between herding cultures that watch animals and and uh, move them across areas of land and agricultural cultures that are planted in one place and and uh, work fields in a given area. Okay, so think about this: when we go back to the patriarchs, we go back to to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. All of them are nomads, and all of them are herders. Right? They are people who are shepherds by trade. And when we see other nomadic shepherding cultures in the ancient world. Um, say, for example, the Midianites that the Israelites meet when they are exiting Egypt. They meet the Midianites, right? Um, their high priest, Jethro, who Moses ends up marrying one of his daughters, his own daughters are what? They're shepherdesses, okay? And so because they're a nomadic culture, 
shepherding is seen as a as a noble profession. But then an interesting thing happens when we see um Isaac and or when we see Jacob and his children go into Egypt at the end of the book of Genesis, you may or may not remember this part, but as they're coming in, Jacob basically or Joseph basically says to his father and to his brothers, "Hey, don't tell anybody that you're a shepherd." Because the Egyptians hate shepherds. They despise them. They see them as lowly. Well, why was that? It's because Egypt was an agricultural culture, right? They're there along the Nile River. Everything they do is a function of growing crops and things like that. And so throughout all of history, there's been this fight between um, shepherding, herding, nomadic cultures, and settled farmer cultures, And that's part of the reason why this picture, even among the Israelites, changes over time. So in the patriarch era, when the Israelites are nomads, shepherding is good. But by the time we get to the New Testament era, they've been in the promised land for generations upon generations, right? Thousands of years, um, 1,500 years anyway. And so they are now established community. They're farmers. They have the land. And what has happened is shepherds have fallen into disrepute again. And so we can think about the way Israel thought about shepherds would be a lot of the same way that we would have thought of cowboys um, in our own American history, right? When you think about cowboys in the Old West, okay, you don't think of them as fine upstanding citizens, right? They're not the guys that you're like, gosh, I got to find me a good cowboy and get him to marry my daughter because um, he's he's the kind of stand-up guy I want. No, they are uncouth, unsettled, dirty, shifty. They live out on the edges of, of society, the margins of, of civilized life. That's true in American culture with, with our herders. It was true in in. Israelite culture during the time of the New Testament. And so what we find out is this, when you read like rabbinic literature, so when you read rabbis, not in the Bible, but rabbis talking about um, shepherds in this time, man, they say the most awful and derogatory things about, about shepherds. Um, all kinds of little things fall into place that, you know, they're not allowed to uh, be a witness in a trial. You can't trust um, uh their testimony on things. They try to sell you something you should assume it was stolen. Those kind of things were said about shepherds. And so this this reality um, that shepherds would be the first people to hear the, the, the good news that Jesus Christ is here is kind of crazy. But also it's not that crazy, especially the fact that we find this in Luke's gospel, because you'll probably remember this all that time we were in the gospel of Luke. What does Luke love? He loves talking about one reality. He loves talking about the fact that Jesus has come for the marginalized, that Jesus has come for the outsider, for the leper, for the sinner, for the prostitute, um, for, for the people who are on the edges. And so uh, when we read Luke's gospel, we don't see anything about the Magi. We don't see anything about kings visiting Jesus, right? But we do learn about the fact that these lowly shepherds were there on the first night uh, of his birth. And so um, Luke likes the idea and wants to emphasize the idea that Jesus has come for these kind of people as well, not just for the good, not just for the religious, but for the outsiders and for the unclean as well. And so the New Testament 
goes as, and you probably realize this too, if you've read the New Testament, you know that the image of a shepherd is very much rehabilitated by the time we get to the end of the New Testament. Okay, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd. Probably the main illustration for what pastoral ministry looks like is the idea of shepherding a flock. And so by the time we get to the end of the New Testament, the picture of shepherds has again transformed and gone from honored to despised and back to honored again. But it's these, these characters, these, these shepherds in the field that would, that would see, that we would see, or that especially that culture would see as unworthy of God's care or God's attention. They are the ones that are graced with the first announcing of the gospel. And, and the reality is, is the gospel comes in out of nowhere in verse nine. It says, and lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Here's something that is in, in, in let's kind of shift here. So we've got the setting now with these, with these shepherds. L- let's look at the picture that we see of the gospel in here. Okay. And the first thing is this, and I think you see this in this passage and I think it's true. Our conversation last week when we were in, in book study circled around it somewhat. The gospel comes as an imposition into ordinary lives, right? The gospel almost always comes out of the clear blue sky and, and, and comes into our lives, literally out of nowhere many times. And it's the imposition this time that's, that's literally, we don't even have to, again, allegorize because it is the word gospels in the text. I don't know if you notice that. When he says, I bring you good news or good tidings of great joy, that is the, the Greek word, euangelizomai, okay, which is basically means gospel. It's, it's, it's where we get our word evangelism from. Like there's all these tied in words there, but it's the word that means the good news. The, the angels literally say, I bring you a gospel of great joy. They're announcing um, the gospel. And as we go through this, their announcement, the elements of the gospel message that, that we see that are both implicit in the text and explicit, meaning the things that they specifically say and the things that are implied by those things all sit at the core of the gospel message. But again, the gospel always comes out of nowhere in a sense. We are going about our lives, not thinking out uh, not thinking about uh, the things of God. And then suddenly, as it were, the message appears out of the night sky to us. And we get a glimpse into heaven. And that's what happens in this story. These shepherds are just doing their jobs, right? They're sitting in the fields like they've done a thousand, ten thousand nights before. Hours of boredom, uh, monotony on top of each other, occasionally punctuated by something kind of scary like a wolf um, or a uh, a poacher or something like that, right? And then all of a sudden, something far more pressing arises out, out on this one night. So let me just say it bluntly. This is part of the reason why I'm a Calvinist when it comes to, to salvation. Because of stories like this, because they ring true in our own lives because I can't explain why the gospel means nothing to someone one day. And then the next day it means everything to them. I can't explain why 
And many of us have experienced this. Why one day you couldn't care less about the things of God. And then the next day, it's all you care about. It's the most important thing in your life, and you don't know how you could live without it. The only thing that makes sense to me, makes all those things make sense, is the imposition of God. The idea that God shows up one day and says, this is the day, right? This is the day I get a hold of this person's heart. This is the day that I get a hold of their attention. The intrusion of the Holy Spirit into our everyday lives, because that's what we see in this passage. And so the angel shows up and says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. So the message is pretty simple. And yet it's packed with significance. This this one sentence, verse 11. And yet every bit of that sentence is critical for the message of the gospel. And I want to zoom in on, on these three titles that are given. Because this child that is born in Bethlehem is, in this city of David, is no ordinary child. The angel says he is three things. He is Savior. He is Christ. And he is Lord. So each element is necessary. And the good news hinges on all three of those realities. And if you take one out or if you distort one, then you distort the gospel. And you'll misunderstand what the gospel is, is the, the actual good news of the gospel. But if we look at each one, we see that each one is key to, to this very good news that they've, they've come to announce. So let's start with the first one. That born unto you this day in the city of David is a savior. So the good news, the gospel, is that a Savior has come to us. But if he is a Savior, then that must mean something. It must mean that we were in trouble, right? It must mean that we needed saving. Well, saving from what? Well, the first century Jews might have thought that it was deliverance from the Romans. But our problems are much greater than that. And humanity's problems are much greater than that. We need saving from our sin. We need saving from the righteous wrath of God. We need saving from the consequences and rebellion of our own lives. That's what we need saving from. And here lies one of the main problems with our comfortable Western lives and how it often results in people rejecting the gospel. Okay. People reject the gospel every single day, but part of the reason why is because we have not made clear to them what the gospel is actually offering. If I go to someone and I say, you know, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life, a life of meaning and a life of goodness, a life of joy. The truth is a lot of people will say, you know what? I already have those things. I already have meaning. I already have peace. I already have joy. I got a pretty great life here in this country. Jesus and Christianity just seem like some extra baggage. means I have something I have to do every Sunday morning now, right? means I've got to give money in certain ways. I, I feel like I've already got all the things that Christianity is offering me without having Jesus in all of that. But that's why saying Christ comes as Savior is so much, is, is so key to it. Because he is a Savior from sin. And that changes the message completely. Now, again, people may still not care. 
right? You may say Jesus has come to save us from our sins. They may still reject that. They may not believe the message, but at least they have been presented with what is at stake. So again, the American church, I think, oftentimes has tried to market the gospel by using all kinds of other things, right? They've tried to say, Jesus will bring you belonging. Jesus will bring you purpose. Jesus will bring you prosperity. And those things, to greater or lesser extents, are true, but none of them is central to the message of Jesus or the mission of Jesus, because Jesus is Savior, and he brings salvation from sin. So let me suggest something to you. As you witness to people, as you share the good news with people, you are going to have to get around to that at some point, right? You're going to have to say, listen, you are a sinner who is going to stand before God one day and give an answer for your sin. And on that day, you are going to be without defense or without excuse unless you have the Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. And again, he can't just be any Savior. He has to be that next word. He must be the Christ. So second issue that I think people have when it comes to the gospel, Jesus is the Christ, the angel says. That is, he is the anointed one. That's what Christ means. Okay, That is, again, to say that he is the specially chosen, the specially singled out, the specially capable, the specially worthy, the specially empowered person to be Savior. So again, a common attitude, I think, that is a problem in our culture is for those who reject the gospel is that they, they get, they think they can get what they need from another spiritual source. All right. So we present these things to them and we say, Hey, you need a savior. Um, you've got these sin in your life. You got this dysfunction in your life. You got this brokenness in your life. You need something to save you from those things. Sure, that'd be great. I believe in yoga, right? Or the God within, or self-actualization, or just being more kind to people, or nirvana, or, or whatever you want, right? It can be anything. But you can say, hey, I've got, I don't get these problems in my life. Sure, I'm not acknowledging, I mean, I'm not pretending that I'm somehow perfect or something like that. I'm just saying that, I've found an answer to these things in other realms. I've found a way to fix my problems through a different avenue that doesn't include Jesus. And that works for me. And again, that's why it's so important for us when we're framing the problem. But once the problem is seen clearly, that then, then we must demonstrate that Jesus is the only appointed means by which the problem can be dealt with. That's another piece of the gospel. And so it's important that we explain to people, again, not just a, it's not untrue that God loves you and wants wonderful things for your life. That's not untrue, but it is just not the whole picture. We have to tell people about the fact that Jesus is an all-sufficient Savior, that Jesus is the one who can save us because he is the one who has been chosen and empowered to do that through his life, death, and resurrection. God is the one who has been offended by our sin. And so he is also the only one who is capable 
of providing for our sin's redemption. And he has done that through his chosen instrument, his only begotten son, whose perfect life and sacrificial death have not only paid our debt, but appeased the wrath of God and are the only means capable of saving us from sin. That's because Jesus is the Christ. Nobody else is the Christ. No other concept is the Christ. No other idea, no other person. There's only one sufficient Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And this is who was born in Bethlehem on that night. The one that God had promised. And he is the one who is uniquely capable to be our Savior. Right? So the good news, you could say, is that the Savior has come and that he is the exact kind of Savior that we need. And the only Savior who could have done these things. But there's one more element there, right? That last one. He is not just Savior. He is not just Christ, but he is also Lord. So we often focus on the free nature of the salvation that we are offered, right? We talk about that all the time in the church, and we're right to do that, that we could never warrant, that we could never earn, that we could never deserve, that we could never merit the salvation that Jesus has offered to us. It is a gift of grace. It has to be received as a free gift of grace um, that is completely accurate and should be said to people. Because it's just as easy for us to fall into some sort of works-based righteousness. We want to make sure people understand that Jesus Christ is who is righteous and he saves us uh, by our putting our trust in him. But it must also be understood that this free gift of grace, it, it still costs you everything. Right? That the free gift costs us everything on the way to God giving us everything, which is sort of a weird convoluted way of saying it. And the reason for that is because Jesus is Lord over you as well. He's the only Lord, the ultimate Lord. His rule and his reign sit at the heart of creation and existence, which means that he saves us when he saves us, we come under the Lordship of Jesus. That's it. There's no other oper- There's no other way to do that. There's no aspect of our lives that he won't alter when he saves us. And so in the free invitation of the gospel, you have to count that cost. And we should tell people the cost, okay? If you say, hey, d- don't worry about any of this stuff. Just have Jesus and then, and then you can, you can, um, you know, live your life however you want to. Just, just come to Jesus. There's a number of preachers out there, some that we have mentioned in the last few weeks, that have basically tried to somehow boil down the message of the gospel to something like that, to say, man, we don't want to put any other thing in there except Jesus. The problem is, is it's not just that we're taking things that are extra to Jesus away. It's that we're chopping pieces of Jesus off, trying to whittle it down into this, this palatable gospel that people will like. But we can't do that because Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Christ, and Jesus is Lord. And so when we tell people the gospel, we ought to tell them. And Jesus tells us to do this, that we should tell them to count the cost. We should tell them, hey, this is going to mean the end of your old life. It's going to mean you walking away from all the sin and self-centeredness and perversion that you have in your life. There's not any other way to do that. Yeah, it's going to be a process, and we're not thinking, nobody's thinking that you're going to be completely 
uh, rid of all these things tomorrow. That's not what's going to happen. But there's no way that you can hold any of it back. You can't cordon off a little section of your life and say, well, this is going to get to be mine, and Jesus gets everything else. No, Jesus is going to take all of it. He's going to demolish all of it, and he's going to rebuild everything in his own image. Jesus demands everything that you have, but he also offers you everything that he has, which when you zoom out, man, that's a pretty good trade, okay? Giving up all that you have to receive everything that he has is a no-brainer, or at least it shouldn't be. And yet at the same time, every single one of us knows that we are presented with that choice every single day, an opportunity to give up ourself and receive Jesus Christ. And yet what do we do almost every single day? There's some way in which we don't do that. There's some way in which in that moment it is easier, it feels, to choose our poverty and our filth over the glories and the good that Jesus offers us. And yet the life of salvation in Christ is the life of submission to Christ as Lord, period. There's no other way. Somebody might say, well, I'll just take the get-out-of-hell-free card, please, and then I'll continue to live life as I have been living it. You cannot. That is not an option that is left open to us. Jesus comes to us as Savior, Christ, and Lord, and we must receive him as all three. There's no other options. That's the gospel, okay? That is, all those things are implicit in the gospel. They're tied up in the gospel. They may not be the first things that we say every single time we share the gospel, but they have to be a part of the gospel uh, uh, declaration because if we don't tell people all of those things, they're going to miss it in some way. And they're going to believe a false gospel. Now, something that's cool is not only is this a picture of the gospel in this passage, but it's a picture of how, what do we do with the gospel once we've, once we've heard it, once we've received it? And we do exactly, I think, what the, um, what the shepherds do in a very broad sense. There is a way in which not only the angel's announcement is a paradigm of the gospel, but the shepherd's reception is a paradigm of how we engage with the gospel. So what do the shepherds do? What's their response to the gospel? Well, again, in a very broad, simple way, when the, when the shepherds respond to the gospel, first they come and see, and then they go and tell. That's it. First they come and see, then they go and tell. Verse 15, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that they had been told, that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their, in her heart. So when the shepherd heard that their Savior Christ and Lord had come into the world, what is their inclination? What do they want to do? They go, let's go see him. Let's go. Let's not just take this information and go, interesting. We'll believe that and we'll continue to live our lives as we have lived them, right? No, they say, let's drop everything. I don't know if you know anything about sheep, right? Not that I'm a shepherd. I don't know a lot about sheep either. But you know what I know? You can't just leave them, right? You can't just sort of say, you know what? Let's just leave them in the field. They'll be fine. And we'll go to this town and look at Jesus. Um, except that's exactly what they do. They leave the flocks and they go find a Jesus because all of a sudden there's something way more important than anything else they had going on. Let's go see him. Let's seek after him. Let's find him. Let's be in his presence. 
Let's worship him. A true encounter with the gospel always leads to a heart that wants to know Jesus and be around him and to see him and to learn about it. Every single time. No, we can't go to Bethlehem now and find him in a manger, but we can encounter him through his word. We see his story and his character displayed in his word. We cannot go bow down in his physical presence, but we can encounter him spiritually in worship, both in the corporate body of believers and in our private worship. We may not um, have a story personally about how angels have opened up the heavens this week and shown us something, but I would bet that every single one of us can tell a story about how Jesus has spoken to us this week. Um, and we have an opportunity to share that when we come to church, when we come into a, a, a body of believers, um, we have the opportunity to share with the fellowship of the church. We have the opportunity to share with the lost, with the least of these, about how Jesus, how the gospel has imposed on our lives and what Jesus has shown us um, this week. We have that opportunity every single time. Jesus obviously isn't just the entrance into the Christian faith. He should be the center of it. A heart that is changed for the gospel should be drawn to Jesus always, to desire continually to come and see, right? You should never get to a point in your Christian faith where you're sort of like, yeah, I think I've got enough Jesus, and I'm going to move on to these other things now. No, we always want to see Jesus. When you've been in ministry for a while, right, you see lots of people who have these big emotional um uh, professions of faith, these big heartfelt uh, moments where they, they seem to have come to Christ. And then many times it ends up leading to nothing, right? Within a few weeks or months, that person is no longer connected to, to uh, anything in the realm of faith or the scriptures or to church or to other believers or anything. And then they go about their business. That is always a telltale sign of a superficial encounter with Jesus. Right. That's not what happens when when you have an encounter with Jesus that is real. Um, it makes you want to be near him. It makes you want to be near his people. It makes you want to see and to learn and to sit at Jesus feet. We think about all those stories, right? Mary and Martha and those kind of stories, right, where where people want to be in Jesus presence. Because a heart changed for Christ desires to abide in Christ. So we come and see. That's the natural outworking of the gospel in our lives. We want to come and see Jesus over and over again. Come to his word. Come to his church. Come to his people. Come to worship. Come to service. Come to love. We want all that. But also, we can't just do that. We cannot just come and see. We have to go and tell also. And so it's easy to want to come and see. Another story that I'm reminded of, you remember, at the Mount of Transfiguration, and James and John and Peter go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured before them. His, his, his face shines white like no launderer could launder the, uh, the clothing that that, that is the, the illustration that is given to us. And you know what Peter says? You remember? Like Peter goes, Lord, it's good that we are here. Should we put up some tents? Right. And you're sort of like, what, Peter, what are you talking about? Why, why would you say that? And people argue about all these things. You're like, oh, is he, is he talking about the tabernacle and he wants to reinstitute Jewish worship, whatever? I don't think that's it. I think he's basically like, you know what? I want to live here. I am witnessing the glorified Christ and I don't want to go anywhere else. 
I want to spend the rest of my life right here. That's what I want to do. Jesus, can we put up some living quarters here? Because I just want to stay here forever. But here's the reality. You can't. You can't stay there forever. You've come and seen, but you got to go and tell now. Because there is a world that you have to return to. But as we return to that world, the glory of the things that we have seen should go with us. And that's exactly what happens to the shepherds. Verse 20, he says, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. We go announcing to the world that the Savior has arrived and that you've met him, that you know the Savior. We go and tell people that. And you say, Ash, you don't know my friends because they're going to think I sound crazy, right? If I show up with my group of friends and start telling them about how I have met the Savior of the world, Christ who is the Lord, um, he's coming to the world as a baby, God taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. They're going to think I'm crazy. Well, you know what? You're probably right, but you won't sound near as crazy as those shepherds that night. I guarantee you won't sound near as crazy as people who say, you know, I was out the other night, just watch my sheep. And uh, anyway, this angel showed up and the glory of the Lord shone around him. And, uh, and then he sort of like opened up heaven. And there was a multitude of the heavenly host singing to us from heaven. And the savior of the world has been born. And he's a baby um, in this podunk town over the hill. And he's in a feeding trough right now. But I promise it's all real, right? I swear this is what we actually heard and saw. The answer is, man, it always sounds crazy, right? Miracles sound crazy. And people may not believe those things. But if we really encountered the goodness of Christ, then we're going to share what we've seen, right? We're going to share with people those things. Believe the good news. Tell other people the good news that God has sent his Christ, his Lord, our Lord, his Savior into the world. And let's make it a priority to come and see, Right? Um, something I've laid out here on the, uh, the, the welcome table for us is some, some reading plans for the coming year. Okay. Reading plans to try to be in the word, uh, every day, um, or as often as you can, right? There's a bunch of different ones. I'll kind of give you after service. I'll kind of give you a rundown of what's out there. Um, man, make a priority to meet the Lord every day this year, right? To come and see the Lord. Each day to engage with Jesus in word, in worship, in fellowship, in service. And then also go and tell the world what you have seen. Go and tell the world what God has done in your life. Will they balk at that? Will they mock it? I'm certain that some people will. Will lots of people just kind of look at you And because they have been taught all the things that we've already mentioned about how, well, you don't have to have this specific Jesus and you can get your problems fixed in these other ways. And there are all these other uh, spiritual paths to tread because they've been taught that by the world. Many people will say not interested. But you tell people about the Christ who is who is Savior and Lord. You tell them about what Jesus has done in your own life. And we'll leave those things in God's hands and we'll expect that, you know what? As we tell people, while some people may reject every once in a while in that one person's life, the gospel is going to impose itself upon them. And the night sky is going to open up 
And even though we may not have expected it that day, that those people will hear the gospel and believe on Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I'm, I'm thankful for the imposition of the gospel. I'm thankful that you have not left us to fix our own problems, to clean up our own lives, to figure it out on our own, um, to, to repent enough or to be good enough or to work our way back to you. Um, but God, you have stepped into creation and God, you have accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ, what we could have never accomplished. Now that you have announced the good news of salvation um, to the entire world. God, that you have that you have made the pronouncement that goes out to every corner of the world and calls people and commands people to come to Jesus Christ and to be saved. God, we ask that we would be ambassadors of that message, that we would be people who have received it ourselves. God, we are as unworthy as those shepherds are. We are as uncouth, we are as dirty, we are as unlikely a person as anyone else is to have received your grace. And yet, you have chosen to bestow that on us. You have chosen to call each one of us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we ask that we would be faithful, God, to come and see and to go and tell. God, give us faithfulness. Give us boldness. Help us to take the message of the good news into the world. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Glory to the earth, let's no more let's sit and smile. No more 
we Amen. Um, yeah, so out on the uh, welcome table, um, wanted to make you aware of, of a couple of, of reading plans out there. So I know that some of you guys have reading plans um, for the scriptures that you already do and, and are part of your um, kind of daily devotion, but but wanted to e- extend, offer three things to you. Okay, so one of the sheets out there is a New Testament reading plan. It's It's almost identical to the one we did this year. Um, it has basically tries to break down in general big chunks of books or whole books within certain given weeks of the year. And that way, if you wanted to use it in a small group kind of context or, or a discipleship kind of context, you know, it'd be, it'd be something to keep you on the same page of reading with other people and give you sort of a digestible chunk of scripture. So that's over there. Okay. Then we've also, I also put out a read through the wisdom literature of the Bible in a year. And what that will do is take you to the Old Testament. It'll take you to Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and you will read through one chapter of those. And that just about takes you the whole year um, to do. And so, so maybe if you're sort of like, cool, I read the, the New Testament last year and, and that now I want to start moving into the Old Testament, but Still, the Old Testament's a little daunting to do in one year. Maybe you just want to do the wisdom literature uh, in this this year. Uh, another option out there on the back of that wisdom literature uh, sheet is a read the Old Testament in a year um, uh, list. But you combine them, okay? So the wisdom literature is on one side. The rest of the Old Testament is on the other. So if you said to yourself, I did the New Testament this year. I want to do the Old Testament this coming year. Then that would be a great sheet to have wisdom on one side, everything else in the Old Testament on the other side. Okay. Then there's one more third sheet. And this is just something I came up with for my girls a couple of years ago. And it is a narrative reading of the Old Testament. Okay. But by that, what I mean is this. It only tells you the story part of the Old Testament. It doesn't get into all of the, um, so for example, the, the prophetic literature and stuff like that. So you read something like the book of Isaiah, right? And he'll give these chapters on chapters of prophecies about things that are going on, but it's not telling you anything new in the story, right? And so I wanted my girls to just sort of be more familiar with the storyline and the characters of the Old Testament. And so I made a reading list that basically takes you through the narrative part of the Old Testament um, and not the other stuff, not that the other stuff's, we shouldn't be reading it too, but maybe this year you just say, cool, like I would like to, as part of a multi-year kind of plan of how to grow in my knowledge of the scriptures and reading of the scriptures, 
Um, that I'm not very familiar with the stuff in the Old Testament. I couldn't even tell you when things happened and things like that. This will give you a, a, a one chapter a day read through the Old Testament and give you sort of a narrative flow of it. So if that's something that's helpful, good for you. If it's not, then you don't, just ignore it, okay? But those are out there if you'd like to use them. I don't know if some small groups have already figured out what they're going to be doing this year in terms of those things. Um, that's one thing that we're going to do this year. Another thing that we're going to shoot for is we're going to try to memorize scripture together this year. So we would love for you to be a part of that. Um, but we're going to shoot for trying to memorize a passage of scripture every week for the 52 weeks of the year. And so we'll have, you know, a list and we'll, we'll try to integrate that into some of our social media stuff and, and remind you of it and, and all be on the same page about those things. So we're going to get that going here in the next week or so to have that planned out for the next year. Just another idea of trying to get the word into our lives to do what we were talking about tonight, to encounter Jesus through his word on a daily basis um, and have have that word uh, implanted in our lives. So a couple of things for 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 a couple of opportunities for you to to use if they're helpful. Great. If you've already got other things going and those things are working for you, then then stick with those. Cool. Um Christmas week, right? Two, two, um, lessons and carol services. Um, if you've got any questions, message me during the week. If you, if you got anybody that you can invite, I've already started inviting, um, people myself. I don't know if you've thought any more about the things I said maybe a month or so ago. I mean, go through your Facebook list, go through your friends list and just start like marking and going, all right, this person is a believer and I know they're in a good church. This person is a not a believer. This person is lapsed in the faith. This per- and, and just start going through it, right? And invite people. Um, send them a message and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know about this thing that's going on. I would love to see you at it if, if it's something that you could uh, make time for in, in all of your Christmas stuff, okay? Um, anyway, have a great week. Um, we'll see you Friday night, um, God willing. And uh, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you, turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week. Okay, real quick, we've, we've got obviously uh, not a lot of people here tonight, so if you could help clean up and get everything set up for a few minutes, that would be great. Thank you. Oh, yeah.